I next met with Dr. Caroline Robert from the Institut Gustave Rossi in Paris, France. And to begin, she discussed one of the most vexing challenges in the management of metastatic melanoma, first-line therapy of the patient with a BRAF V600E mutation. Of course, the question is addressed when you have a patient with a BRAF mutant melanoma, because then you have two possibilities. Are you going to give this patient an anti-BRAF, anti-MEC combination? We have a COMBI-AD trial, which is quite a mature trial. We already have overall survival, and we already know that we have a benefit with this combination as compared with placebo. And on the other hand, we have patients who have been treated with pembrolizumab or nivolumab. So the trial for nivolumab was versus ipilimumab, which was already an effective treatment, and the trial with pembrolizumab was versus placebo. That is to say that we have also the anti-PD-1 monotherapy that can be given to this particular patient. So how are you going to choose? Honestly, now you cannot choose based on the clinical trial because we don't have the same line of evidence. The trials with anti-PD-1 are less mature. They are also positive, but we don't have the overall survival and we don't have a head-to-head comparison. But if you have the choice, I mean, this is a very debated question. I was recently at a meeting where we had, with one of my colleagues, who is also a key opinion leader, each of us had to defend one position. And honestly, you could, I mean, I could have defended the other position because right now we don't know. I can give you an example. I had a very young patient, 18, 18 year old. This is rare, but we can have patients very, very young with melanoma. And this young woman had a very pejorative melanoma with a relapse with multiple lymph nodes in the cervical area after a melanoma on the head. And this patient was BRAF mutant. The melanoma was BRAF mutant, but she had a Crohn disease. So this is a quite easy situation. We went and gave her anti-BRAF, anti if she did not have a Crohn disease, I think you have, I mean, maybe some physicians are very convinced that one is better than the other, but honestly, right now, you cannot really be very convinced because of what I just said. We don't have the comparison head to head. And I think what is extremely important is to give your patient the most clear information because you also have patients who would be very afraid to have an adverse event that would be permanent. Like, uh, you know that if you give an anti-PD-1, you might have your thyroid stopping functioning and that you would have to take hormones all your life. On the other hand, with anti-BRAF, anti you have twice as many adverse events, but it's very rare that they can persist. So you have to explain all that to your patients and today, There is no right or good solution. Both treatments are acceptable. So maybe I could dissect that with you a little bit, some of the things that you say to your patients, including this patient, or, you know, a patient who, you know, I'm sure some of your patients, maybe you even have physicians who are patients who are pretty sophisticated. So first question would be, indirectly, how do you compare the benefit of adjuvant therapy in a BRAF-positive patient comparing BRAF-MEC to checkpoint inhibitor? 
Well, right now, as I said, you have two categories of trials. You have much more data and uh, more mature trials with antibiotic antimic. And I must say, I'm quite surprised of the outcome of this trial. It seems really good because we could be afraid because, you know, these treatments, maybe we should say that upfront, it's given for one year. And we know that in the metastatic setting, if we stop anti-BRAF, anti-MEC, most of the patient will relapse. So we could be afraid that the patient, after stopping, after one year, would relapse. And we don't seem to see that. It suggests that maybe if you have a very small disease, like subclinical disease, maybe you can eliminate all the cells. So you know also that you can stop immunotherapy in the metastatic disease because all we know, I mean, the most knowledge comes from what we know from the metastatic disease. We know we can stop immunotherapy. We know we cannot stop targeted therapy. So intuitively, you would think that maybe it would be better to give anti-PD-1. But I must say that with the data that we have, the solid clinical trial-based data, we cannot really say that anti-BRAF, anti-MEC are less good than anti-PD-1 in the adjuvant setting. What would you estimate in this particular patient, your 18-year-old woman, what would you estimate her baseline risk of relapse was without adjuvant therapy? And what would it be with either a checkpoint inhibitor or anti-BRAF, MEC? I mean, she had the multiple lymph node macroscopically involved. So the risk of relapse for her was really, really high, you know, something like 70%. I mean, very soon in the two or three years. So we know that with these treatments, we decrease the risk of death. We know that with the anti-BRAF, anti-MEC, significantly more than 50% at three years, and with uh, anti-PD-1, we don't yet know for the risk of death, but the risk of relapse, we know we decrease it for uh, close to 50% also. So uh, it's a huge effect statistically for this patient. And you mentioned the fact that she had Crohn's disease. What kind of treatment was she on for the Crohn's disease, and how bad of a problem was it? She was not in a big crisis. It was not in an acute crisis, but you know, you are not... In the adjuvant setting, if you have the choice, it's better not to really, we say, to give the evil a temptation, you know. She had a local treatment. She has steroid, but locally administered. And she's doing not so bad, but she clearly has Crohn's disease. It's not like patients who have had an inflammatory bowel disease years ago with several years of not one single symptom. She had some crisis like one or two years ago, so we felt it was really more reasonable. What in, I'm sure you have much more experience with patients with metastatic disease, but what's been your experience with people with prior autoimmune disease like Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, there are times, I think, when these patients end up getting treated because there's really no other option. What's your experience been? My experience is not so bad. In fact, it happened quite a lot. So it depends on the disease. If you have somebody who had, for example, a Guillain-Barré syndrome, I would not. Even, you know, I would be too afraid. But a patient, it really happened to me, for example, inflammatory bowel disease, and this is not so rare in the population. What we do, we work closely with a colleague who is specialist in this disease, and we do a colonoscopy to see 
how active is the disease at the time we might give the treatment. And then, if it's okay, we give the treatment. And I can tell you that I cannot really tell exactly how many patients I treated like that, but I think that in the majority of the cases, it was okay. It did not come back. And also, you talked about arthritis. We have some patients with polyarthritis rheumatoid, and we had some patients that we treated, and I would say that maybe half of them increased their symptom, and sometimes we could give a treatment, like symptomatic treatment. But it is true, you're right, when you are in the metastatic setting, we don't really have the choice, you know. It's a little bit different for the adjuvant setting. So what happened to this woman, and what's her current situation? She's doing very well. I mean, this young patient who received antibiotic antimax, she's doing well. She has almost no adverse events, and she's a little bit tired. You can have some fatigue, but she's really doing well. So she's getting dibrafenib, trametinib? She will finish the first year very soon, and we're going to stop, and we're going to really follow up closely, yes. Could you reflect on what your experience is in using this combination or other combinations in the adjuvant setting, as well as metastatic disease? What are the common problems that occur, and what do you do about it? So... You have different combinations. One is dabrafenib-trametinib, where I think we give this one much more often than cobimetinib-vemurafenib. Why? Because we think that it's easier to manage in terms of adverse events. There is, you know, these two combinations. Now we have a third combination that is very soon going to be available on the market in France, binimetinib and corafenib, but the price is not yet fixed might be very interesting. But with dabrafenib trametinib, in addition to the class effect, the adverse events that are linked to the class effect, we have fever, chills, and this can be a problem for some patients. With vemurafenib cobimetinib, the adverse event that can be really difficult to manage is photosensitivity. So it can seem not such a big problem, but I can tell you it's a very, very strong photosensitivity. If people do not take care, do not exert a very strict photoprotection, they go out even if they don't live on an island, in a tropical island, they are red like a lobster and they suffer. So that can be very tricky to manage. But we can go from one combination to the other, depending on the adverse events. But usually, I think it's quite tolerable. It's very rare that we have to stop, definitely, this one or the other of these regimens because of adverse events. It's quite rare. It's good, because as I said before, we know that if we stop, the probability to relapse is very high. So we'll talk a little bit more about checkpoint inhibitors and also checkpoint inhibitors in the adjuvant setting in a second. But I'm kind of curious, what are some of the trials that are going on right now to move the adjuvant therapy forward? And one issue you brought up was the duration of therapy, specifically with BRAF, MEC. Are there, you know, I was kind of thinking about the tamoxifen trials in breast cancer. They started out one year, then it was two years, five years, 10 years. Is there an interest in extending the duration of this therapy? That's a very good question. And, you know, if the curves were beginning to fall down after three years, I think it was really something that we should evaluate. But 
Presently, with the data that we have, we'll see the follow-up, but right now it's quite encouraging and surprisingly, uh, one year seems to have a very long-term effect. But now, how to improve this adjuvant treatment? We have now, we are evaluating different combinations of immunotherapy, like Ipilimumab plus nivolumab, we try also to optimize the tolerance because, as you know, this is very, very rich in adverse events. So we try to find a way to decrease the toxicity. But maybe because we know that this regimen gives a slightly better effect than anti-PD-1 single agent, it is now evaluated in the adjuvant setting also. What about predictors of treatment benefit in the adjuvant setting? Any way to, you know, maybe shade it towards immunotherapy versus BRAF, PD-1 levels, tumor mutation burdens, any factors related to BRAF mutations that push you one way or the other? We would love that. Right now, I must say we do not. We begin to have uh, presentations and we will have publication very soon about the biomarker analysis that are done in these trials. Right now, what do we know? We know that this combination, Dabratrame, or these anti-PD-1 treatment give good results regardless of PDL one expression and most of the biomarkers that we have analyzed until now. But I hope that with more analysis and more follow-up, maybe we will see something coming out and helping us to decide. Right now, we don't have that, unfortunately. It's interesting, you know, in lung cancer and even other cancers, we hear more and more about tumor mutation burden. Yet, I don't hear too much about that in melanoma. Has it been looked at? Sure, it has been looked at. Actually, it was the first publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, patient treated with ipilimumab, and it was shown that patients with high tumor mutational burden responded better. This was a paper by Chang and a collaborator. So then there was paper about lung disease. But finally, what do we see in melanoma patients? It is true that if you have a lot of mutations, your probability to respond is higher. However, what we know also from the work that has been done in a very detailed fashion about really trying to know which neoantigens were involved in the response, because what we have to remind everybody is that the tumor mutational burden, why do we think it helps to respond? It's because at the favor of this genetic instability, the tumor might express some neoantigens, meaning some antigen that the immune system has not seen. So it's very good to respond. But in reality, what has been very well shown for example, by the team in NKI, the team of Ton Schumacher, working really on trying to dissect the molecular events at the neo-antigen level. In fact, what do we see? We see that you have very few neo-antigens that really do the job, that really induce the T-cell response that is going to kill the tumor. And plus, not only there are very few of them, but they are very private, meaning if you have a patient a with a melanoma and the patient B, the neoantigen are not going to be the same, even though it's melanoma in both cases. But of course, if you have a lot of mutation, 
your probability to have this new antigen is higher. So, in fact, it's true that in general, it's better to have a lot of mutation, but sometimes you might respond very well in spite of having very few mutation, if only you have the good ones. So I'm very happy that we are not limited by the tumor mutational burden, but sometimes it can help us. I remember there was a very interesting paper we have this subgroup of melanoma, very rare. It's the melanoma of the eye, uveal melanoma. This is a different story molecularly. And these melanoma are not linked to the sun because, you know, it's not sun exposed. It's a very different story. They have different mutations and they have very few mutations, very few, one, two per megabase. And they do not respond to immunotherapy. But there was this patient reported in a recent issue of Nature.com. It was Rodriguez and Al. And this patient responded beautifully to anti-PD-1. And you know what? This patient, by chance, had a constitutional mutation that was inducing a lot of mutation. And that was, a, you know, by chance that this melanoma of the eye was highly mutated. So in some cases where you are in a tumor that usually does not have a lot of mutation, it might help us. But routinely, it's not helping us a lot. But just also to really insist on this point shown by our colleague Paul Young at the last ASCO meeting, that Merkel cell carcinoma either have a lot of mutation or have very few mutation when they have the poliomavirus in their genome. And in both cases, they respond very well to immunotherapy. It means that either they have a lot of mutations, so they might have the good neoantigen that are expressed, or they have, with the virus, very few but very well-poised neoantigens. So I'm going to move on now and talk about metastatic melanoma, but just kind of as a follow-up to what you were saying about new trial ideas and immunotherapy, new ideas, just kind of curious about other checkpoint inhibitors that are being looked at in melanoma, the ones that I've heard about and I think a lot of people have heard about, epicatastat, LAG3, and TIM3. To us, these are barely names, but at least we've heard the names. Could you kind of summarize what these other checkpoints are and what we know about them in terms of clinical research? So epacadosta is a little bit a sad story for us. Uh, it's not really a checkpoint, I would say, but it's an enzyme that we know is immunosuppressive. It acts on the cycle of tryptophan. And there were some quite promising data in a few patients with a 55% response rate, no toxicity. I think we should have been a little bit more cautious about the fact that this drug does not induce any adverse event. Tell me about one drug that gives no adverse event and that is effective. I don't know any. Hmm. But anyway, we combined epacadostat, this IDO, so the enzyme is called IDO, IDO inhibitor, epacadostat, with pembrolizumab, and we compared with pembrolizumab single agent plus placebo. So a very well-conducted trial. If you look at the curves, you just cannot distinguish them because they are really on top of the other, PFS, OS. Totally negative trial. At least we didn't have a bad effect, a pejorative effect. 
But that was a big disappointment in the community. I must say that it was a long time that we didn't have a negative trial in melanoma. We become, we now become to be very ambitious, you know. We want to do better each time. So it was a big disappointment. But also I think it's a good lesson. It's a good lesson because we need to have more data in phase two, more preclinical data to go ahead with a big phase three. And I hope it's going to help us to design trial in a better way. Now, you talked about TIM3 and LAG3. There are a checkpoint inhibitor, also interacting, you know, interaction between tumor cell immune cells or immune immune cells. And these are negative checkpoints also. So we try to block them and we have clinical trials going on. We have some phase two, we have some so-called platform trial where we combine anti-PD-1 with such and such drug because we look for a signal of efficacy because, you know, after you fail anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 plus ipilimumab, if you are wild-type BRAF, what do you give to your patients? You are in a very difficult situation. So any signal of efficacy, even 10-15%, we would try to go and to see who is going to respond. Also, we have some very promising results with um, stimulation of uh, innate immunity trying to induce a sort of a dangerous signal to activate the immune system with, for example, toll-like receptor agonist. These receptors, they are the same family as uh, TNF-alpha or IL-1. These are so-called primary cytokine. You know, they activate the immune system, but in a very unspecific way innate. They are activated, for example, this toll-like receptor, they are activated by bacteria or germs. So we can stimulate them with agonists and we try to combine that with anti-PD-1 or with uh, anti-CTLA-4. And we have some quite promising results. So now we already have phase three going and more specifically with TLR9 agonist. And there are several of them in development. Let's maybe talk about just clinical decision-making nowadays in terms of patients you're going to, in the metastatic setting, where you're going to use immunotherapy. And whether that's BRAF wild type or not, and of course, you know, one key question is, are you going to use a checkpoint inhibitor alone or are you going to use a combination like Ipinevo? Can you talk a little bit about in your own mind how you compare those two options and how do you go about making a decision? Do you look at PDL1 levels, for example? Now, there's a very, very important question. So first, I would like to say that even if the patient is BRAF mutant, I would go first with immunotherapy in the metastatic disease, unless the patient has a very, very big tumor burden, very rapidly threatened by the metastasis, very symptomatic. But in the other situation, which is the majority of the cases, I would go with an immunotherapy. So now your question is very important. Should we go with anti-PD-1 single agent, about 40% of response rate, about 15% of grade 3 and 4 adverse events, or should we go with anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-1, so nivolumab plus ipilimumab, with a response rate that is a little bit higher, close to 60%, but also 60% of grade 3 and 4 adverse events. That's 
Do I do PDL1 staining? Well, I do PDL1 staining, but I do it in a research objective because I would not rely on that. The reason is simple. It really happened to me several times to do two biopsies in one patient of two different metastases and to have a positive on one side and a negative PDL1 on the other side. This is not stable, this is not homogeneous, this staining it is not very well standardized. And here again, I'm happy that we can give the drugs regardless of the staining. It's a little bit like what we said about the tumor mutation burden. If you have a high PDL1 staining, you know the chances are high that you are going to respond to anti PDL1. But I can tell you, I have a lot of patients who have responded with a negative PDL1 also. So I don't do it as a decision making. I know some people do it, but we don't do it in most of the cases in our hospital and in our country. But what I think is going to be very important is to really explain to the patients. Because if you give anti-CTLA-4 anti-PD-1, you know that the patient has a high probability to have a strong adverse event, a severe adverse event. And he has or she has to be okay to take the risk. And that's very important that you explain the risk to the patient. And you have really to spend a lot of time explaining it. What I would do, I would propose anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-1, so niveau EP. I would propose that to patients who are in good shape. I would not propose that to a patient who is 90 years old. But, you know, patients who are in good shape, who really want to, to fight, I would really propose them this option. Because even if it's not much better than anti-PD-1, it seems to be a little bit better. And we know that even if we have to stop for toxicity, in 40% of the cases, it's huge. I mean, close to half of the patients do not receive the entire treatment with the four infusion. Why? Because of toxicity. But it does not impair the response. And you know, I can tell you a story of a patient. One infusion. I remember, very young man, good shape. One infusion big adverse events like hepatitis, colitis, fever, we stop. And before even considering coming back with the second infusion, he's in complete response. He never received another infusion. So that's great. Was that epinevo or single agent? Yeah, epinevo. Wow. And I'm kind of curious, since you brought up that case, do you think there generally is a correlation between autoimmune toxicity and treatment benefit? Well, that's a good question also. In fact, it has been very well shown with vitiligo or vitiligoid reaction, you know, this pigmentation of the skin, and which implies that your immune system is doing too good, like is uh, destroying even the melanocytes who are just benign melanocytes. And that we really clearly showed, and we and others showed that if you have a vitiligo, you respond with a higher probability but for other adverse events also, there is a tendency to show that if you have uh, immune-related adverse events, the response rates are higher. But you know, it's difficult to do this kind of analysis. Why? Because you have a big risk of bias, because it's called the time lead bias. If you have a long survival, a response, so a long survival, your probability to develop an adverse event is higher just because of the time. 
So you have to work with good statisticians who do the analysis, but getting rid of this time lead bias. But in doing so, yes, you can see in most of the cases in the retrospective study, well, we cannot do prospective study for that, of course, we see that it seems to be associated with response. And the best thing also, reassuring thing, is that if you give steroid, because you know that if you have a strong adverse event, you give steroid, sort of antidote to the activation of the immune system, it seems that you don't decrease your response. So that's quite reassuring. If you need the steroid, you can give it and you don't impair the good outcome. So you mentioned, and you know, most melanoma investigators also tell me that their inclination is to use the combination ipinevo when they can. What about the strategy of starting PD-1, starting Nevo, and waiting and adding in the ipi if the patient doesn't have a good response? You know, it needs to be evaluated in a clinical trial. We have some data about that from clinical trials where we know that the patient failed and then we have captured the data of what happened after and we have about 13% of response after anti-PD-1 failure with EP. But this is not very clear clear data because it was captured like that. It was not prospectively looked at and we try we try really hard to do this kind of trial, actually. It's not so easy. We would like to do to patient to fail and TPD-1 to compare EP single agents or EP niveau. That would be very important for the community. But right now, I know that, for example, in Europe, with the EURTC, we are trying to mount this clinical trial, and it's quite a lot of effort. I'm not discouraged for trying, but it would be very important. Today, we don't exactly know what's the best, and also it depends on the availability of this combination in your countries, but the data that we have available, it's interesting because ipilimumab first line, you know the response rate is about, is not really higher than 13%, depends, it's between 13 19 so it seems that you don't really decrease the rate of response if you use it after anti-PD-1. It's quite interesting. You alluded to your preference, I think, for immunotherapy in patients with metastatic disease who are BRAF positive. What's your own estimate of the chance of prolonged response slash, you know, maybe even cure immunotherapy versus BRAF MEC? So... Complete response, complete remission. It means you don't see metastasis anymore. So if there are some, they are microscopic. So you don't see anything with your eyes. You don't see anything with your CT scan, your PET scan. If you are in this situation with anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4, we now have some data, some even some insight to be quite confident to stop this immunotherapy. And this is absolutely a big, big new. We never could stop before we had this drug in the context of metastatic melanoma. So this is something very new. We stop, but we had to decide of some criteria. So we decided that we need to treat the patient for at least six months. Practically, I think most of the patients receive one year of treatment by the time you decide, you discuss, etc., about one year. So between six months and 12 months. And then you have to confirm your complete response with two CT scans that show 
the same complete remission. And then you tell your patient, well, you know, we have some data. Now we have more and more data and we have more and more follow-up after stopping. And we know that more than 90% of the patients who stop treatment in this situation do not relapse, are still in complete response after more than five years. So this gives us some comfort, you know, to tell the patient that we can stop. We cannot oblige them to stop. We have some patients who are very, very afraid to stop. This week I saw a gentleman, he told me, you know, he's a doctor actually, and he told me, I'm so afraid to stop, I don't want to stop. So in France, we can continue the treatment. We are not limited. But I also can tell you that I had a patient who developed a type 1 diabetes after three years of treatment. Was it related to the drug? Was it not? I don't know. But that's a question. I think if you are in complete response and the patient is not too afraid to stop, I think it's very reasonable to stop. Now, what happened with BRAFMEC? And also, excuse me, the percentage of complete response with anti-PD-1? about 20%. The percentage of complete response with combination epinivo, the same, not more complete response. That's interesting. We have more partial response, but the same. You know what I'm looking forward to have a treatment with more than 20% of complete response. And with Dabratrame, we also have 20% of complete response. But here, you don't want to stop because if you stop, most of them will relapse. Do you have patients who have a partial response, but yet are stable and live, you know, five years? Yeah, we have that also. We have that also, and we also have some results of one trial, the Keynote 006. We had two years of treatment in the trial, and we had to stop after two years. So we had some patients who stopped in partial response, and some even in stable disease. And we also have some follow-up, and after two years of median follow-up, most of them were still partial responders or stable disease. But a little bit less patient remain in response than the complete responders. So I want to hear about your patient, a really interesting case of BRAF-positive disease, this patient with a brain mat. Yeah, it's a young patient who had a BRAF mutant melanoma, he had a lymph node involvement, axillary lymph node, and he also had a bone metastasis. And he was treated with BRAF-MEC. He was treated not in my center. When we saw him, he progressed, but he progressed badly because he progressed also in the brain. So he was very young. He was also a colleague, a doctor, a young doctor. And so one brain met and relapsed in the lymph node, and so we decided to do stereotactic radiosurgery on the unique brain met that was asymptomatic and to switch to uh, anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4. So he was informed of the risk and then he responded in the lymph node, but he had a big enlargement of the brain met that, that was treated by radiotherapy, but you know, we didn't know if it was just not a good effect, a sort of inflammation due to the treatment, maybe increased by the radiotherapy, or just the radiotherapy was not strong enough to prevent the metastasis to grow, and he became a little bit symptomatic with headaches. So we gave steroid 
because he had a brain edema. And we worried a lot about this patient. And then we did a MRI, repeated MRI. And finally, one month after, the edema began to decrease. And he finally responded. It took some time. And this is important because... Of course, we were not going to biopsy his brain. It's not easy. It's not something that you can do. If it had been somewhere else, we could have done a biopsy to try to understand what was happening. But we know we can have this sort of flare, you know. And when you flare in the brain, sometimes it's not very good. But the good thing is that this patient responded totally. He could stop therapy. And now he's off therapy for maybe one year. He's doing very well. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about flare, you know, what the mechanism is, and what happens clinically? In fact, we have learned that with ipilimumab. We have seen some patients with an initial increase of the size of the metastasis and even sometimes new metastasis, but then secondarily a decrease of the size of the metastasis. So we thought, I mean, we everybody thought, well, maybe... We attract lymphocytes, we induce a big inflammation with the immune system that is activated, and then the immune system does the job, and then afterwards it destroys the metastasis. So that's it's not very well documented because even if you do a biopsy, you are going to find some lymphocytes and some tumor cells, but if you don't compare, it's not so easy to really make sure that it's a flare before, I mean, the response is given afterwards when you see the metastasis eventually decrease in size or disappear. So this is happening more frequently with ipilimumab than with anti-PD-1, we think. It's maybe about maybe 10% of the cases of the responses with ipilimumab that are preceded by the increase, but it's much less frequent with the anti-PD-1. It creates a difficult situation. You know, the patient have to be explained. We have to tell the patient, well, you know, it doesn't seem to respond right now, but we don't know if it's because it just does not work, which happens quite a lot, you know. Response rate 40%. It means that uh, in uh, more than 50% of the cases, you just do not respond. Or if you are not in a too critical situation, you can wait a little bit more, do another CT scan, and really hope that you will see a response a little bit later. I guess there's really no way to know whether it's an actual flare or just the disease continuing to get worse. No, just the time will tell you that. So I'm kind of curious, you know, the one other place that I've heard stories, you know, of cases that seems like maybe more common where you see people progressing before they get better is renal cell cancer. Do you think that's true? Well, I'm not really an expert. I'm not an expert in renal cell cancer at all. I heard that also. And there are quite a lot of similarity between renal and melanoma. These are the two cancers where we were fighting to try to treat with immunotherapy for a long period of time. So, you know, maybe this same kind of phenomenon can happen. Yeah, that's kind of, I've heard people say that. Let's talk a little bit about the use of BRAF-MEC combinations. And you alluded to the fact that now there's a new one out there. We now have three. So can you talk a little bit about what we know about the three options and at this point, how you sort through them clinically? Well, we have, for example, in France, the third combination is not yet available. But let's imagine it is. 
I think that most of the prescribers will maybe initially stick to their habits and continue to prescribe maybe Dabratramé or Cobivemue. I mean, in France, more people prescribe Dabratramé than Cobivemue because of the photosensitivity. But very soon, I think, as soon as we will have adverse events, fever, we will try to change. And who knows if we find that finally it's simpler to use the third combination, maybe the habits are going to change. That we'll see over the years. Also, what I think, and that also will depend on the countries, is the price. You know, maybe one combination will be less expensive than another. So it depends on the health public system. From your point of view, using indirect comparisons at this point, how do you compare the efficacy and tolerability of these three regimens? Yeah. In terms of efficacy, we have the median overall survival is longer with the third combination, binimetinib and corafenib. It's 33 months. So it's the longest that we have with the combination, a little bit longer than Dabratrame and Cobivemu, which were around two years, a little bit more. I'm not sure we can really say today, because we don't have head-to-head comparison, that one is really more effective than the other. If you look really into the group of patients, you see that you have less patients with a high LDH level in the trial, the Columbus trial of binimetinib and corafenib. So maybe less patients with a bad prognosis. So we are not sure we have exactly the same populations of patients. So maybe I think these are three very effective combinations. Now, I think the difference is going to be played on the tolerance profile, honestly. And how do you assess the tolerance profile of the three? So, you know, as we said, Fever chills with Dabratrame if your patient complains about being uncomfortable because of the fever. We're going to try and give another combination and probably binimetinib and corafenib. And then if you have a cobivemu and a patient who develop a strong photosensitivity, you'll try another combination. I think it will take some time and then maybe doctors will take some habits, you know, and maybe some of them will give first line one combination. But I think that will become after using the combination and seeing what happens to the patients. You were part of a paper at ASCO, a poster that looked at adverse events in the phase three Columbus study that looked at encarafenib and benimetinib. What did you report there? It looked like there was less fever than what you see with dabrapinib, trametinib. Of course. Yeah, we have all the class effects of antibiraf or anti-MEC and the combination. So that is common to the three combination, like you have some skin adverse events, some fatigue, some diarrhea. But as we said, Dabratrame, what is specific is the fever chills. Cobivemu is the photosensitivity. And Bini Co, we don't really have something special popping out. So it's possible that it's the best ratio between the adverse events and the benefit. It's possible. So I noticed when looking at some of your work that you had a number of publications related to brain mets with melanoma, and you had an education presentation at the last ASCO meeting 
new era in the management of melanoma brain mets. Can you kind of provide an update in terms of what's new in terms of melanoma and brain mets? What's new is that the drugs that work in the metastatic setting outside of the brain, because the clinical trial initially did not allow patients with brain meds, what's new is that we know that combination of dabratrame, even cobivemu, but it came later, we know that it can act in the brain, but we were disappointed because the response rate is lower than in the cutaneous melanoma metastasis elsewhere, and also the duration of response is less durable. It's six months in median PFS instead of one year. So we were a little bit disappointed. And the good thing is that the combination of ipilimumab plus nivolumab at the ASCO meeting two years ago gave some interesting results with two presentations, one with a very small group of patients. So I think it's mostly the other one. The U.S. team with the combination, it's Taubi, the first author who showed a response rate more than 50% in the brain. So that was quite spectacular. And the Australian trial that was presented by Georgina Long, very few patients, but still the same ratio. So it was comforting to see these two trials, meaning that EP niveau can give rise to good responses in the brain. But what we said when we did this education session with my colleague Taubi, we think that we need to have trials that incorporate the radiotherapy, stereotactic radiotherapy, because this can be a big help. So we need to build trials where we evaluate combination of systemic treatment plus stereotactic radiosurgery. This remains a very critical situation, and patients with brain meds have a very pejorative prognosis, unfortunately, especially if they have a lot of brain meds. But you also have some patients who survive a long time with brain meds. And I saw in my clinic two days ago a man, now he's 67. He was diagnosed four years ago with a metastatic melanoma, multiple lung and brain metastasis, and he had ipilimumab initially and then anti-PD-1, his NRAS mutant, so could not have BRAF MEG treatment. And he responded in a dissociated way to anti-PD-1, but he responded on some metastasis. The other one were either surgically removed, he had two surgeries of the brain, two surgeries of the lung metastasis, and he had a lot of radiostereotactic sessions more than 10, just to show you that we have really changed our way of treating the patients because now our radiotherapist colleague, they know that we have good drugs, so they really changed their standard. Before that, they were telling us only three metastases, only three centimeters. Now they do. I mean, this patient had more than 10 radiostereotactic. And his incomplete response, it's more than four years ago, this man undoubtedly would have been dead if it was before these treatments and this combination of treatments. So things have changed, but it's still much more difficult and we need to optimize. So for the remainder of our time discussing things, I thought we could move beyond melanoma and get your take on some of the new developments in other dermatologic cancers in some cases, maybe not that new, but I'm curious, starting out with basal cell cancer, at least in the United States, there are now two hedgehog inhibitors approved. Can you talk about your clinical experience with these types of agents? 
So hedgehog inhibitor, they really help us. They help us in some difficult situation. It's hard to believe, but we all know that sometimes we see patients arriving with huge basal cell carcinoma. You think, but how can this person have waited so long? But it happens. It happens because the psychology is a big mystery. And some people just are afraid to see the doctors or consider that if they don't have pain, it's okay. And you see... Not stupid people. You see people very intelligent coming with huge tumors. And sometimes the surgery would be even sometimes technically feasible, but it would really be very disfigurating. So you have these drugs that are very effective. The adverse events are there, but they are not very strong. They are chronic adverse events. So sometimes it's a little bit difficult at the end, but it really helps a lot. And I have a lot of patients who really benefit from that. And we now begin to use these drugs in the neoadjuvant setting, meaning that we give sonic drug inhibitor, and then we do surgery in a second time, and we can have very good outcome. But I would say the situation where it helps me a lot also are these patients with Gorlin syndrome. These patients, they have a constitutional mutation of a patch gene, any gene on the pathway, on the sonic hedgehog pathway, and they are full of basal cell carcinoma, full of them. So they are not metastatic because, as we know, these cancers very rarely give rise to metastasis, but they are full on their skin, they are full of basal cell carcinoma, and if they take the drug, it just stops. I mean, they don't have anyone occurring on their skin for the period they take the drug. It works very well. But now what I do with my experience is that because these patients sometimes are tired of taking the drug every day, and you know it's very different, the adverse events. It's not very severe, but chronic, like they have this dysgeusia, meaning that they don't really feel the same taste of what they eat. And that, I mean, it's a pain after some time not to be able to be very happy with what you eat, especially because these patients sometimes are old. So, I mean, maybe they don't have a lot of distraction and they like to eat good things and they begin to eat less and less and to lose weight and they have cramps also. So cramps doesn't seem to be very important, but if you have cramps every night in your bed, you know, these kind of adverse events can be really difficult after some months. So what we do is that we try to find a sort of regimen that is acceptable for the patient. And what I do now currently with my patient is I give the drug for six months and then we stop for whatever time and we try to evaluate the time where the cancer comes back for the Gorlin syndrome. And now for some patients we know. We know that we can stop for two months and then they are in good shape and say, okay, let's take the drug again. So this is not something that has been validated by clinical trials, but that's something that we do in practice, clinical practice. Any difference between the hedgehog inhibitors in terms of either their efficacy or tolerability? So we have much less experience in France with Sonigeny. We use Bismodegib, and from what we read, I'm not sure there are a lot of difference. For example, there is something in the trial with Sonigeny, they, they looked at the CPK enzymes. So it seemed that the CPK enzymes are elevated in a high fraction of the patient. But in the Bismodegib trial, we just did not look at that in the blood. So it doesn't mean that it does not go up. It does go up also. 
And we have some differences in terms of efficacy, but here again, it has not been tested head to head. And in Europe, we have much less experience with sonid Egypt. So from what I see, I think these drugs are both very effective and they have the same kind of adverse events. So you mentioned the muscle cramps and the dysgeusia. Other than dose reduction or stopping the treatment, are there any complementary strategies that work? Do you advise the patients to eat certain types of food, any medications, anything that helps with these problems? Yes, we can help. We can help with work with dietitian, and they can try to help the patient to find the food that they like and that is not destroyed by the drug. Also, we advise the patient to do some exercise, but not too violent, and they have some physical therapy, and that can really help symptomatic treatment. You mentioned the genetic Gorlin syndrome, and I was trying to remember back to medical school what Gorlin syndrome is. What else do you see besides basal cells? Is that the only manifestation? Yes. Well, some of the patients also might have some meningioma. So we do a CT scan of the brain, and they also have cystic lesion in the bone. They might have some bone dystrophy, and besides that, they are doing well. What do we know about checkpoint inhibitors in squamous cell cancers? Who gets these tumors? And what is semiplimib? Okay, so semiplimab is an anti-PD-1 antibody. It has been tested in squamous cell carcinoma of the skin, which are actually very frequent. It's the second in incidence after basal cell carcinoma. It's due to the sun exposure, so it's mostly sun-exposed areas that are involved. It also can be induced by some virus, like papillomavirus, you know, especially in the genital areas. And these cancers, I can tell you, they are very frequent, most of the time, they are small, we can just excise them surgically, and that's fine. But in some patients, especially now, you know what I think, if this recording can help you to diffuse the information that men, when they lose their hair, they have to really protect their scalp from the sun, that would be a very good point, because I see every day patient with cancer on their scalp because of the sun exposure. And if you take the sun every day, even if it's not very, very strong sun exposure, they will get some keratosis and eventually they will get squamous cell carcinoma. So we have a lot of patients and sometimes old patients with squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck and lymph node metastasis because it's not like basal cell carcinoma which very rarely give rise to metastasis. Here, in squamous cell, we can have metastasis when the tumor are aggressive. Can I clarify, though, when you talk about the typical patient who gets a sun-induced squamous cell, are those the people who end up with metastatic disease, or is it like, you know, more people with immune deficiencies, transplant, etc.? You also have that. You have patients just because of the sun exposure who will come with a squamous cell carcinoma and sometimes becoming metastatic. But I was going to this point, the patient, immunocompromised patients, for example, uh, transplanted patients, they are at high risk. And in this patient, it can become very aggressive. And it's difficult. It's very difficult because in this patient, we are a little bit afraid to use anti-PD-1, you know. To stimulate a lot the immune system of a patient who is transplanted, it's another problem. 
But most of the patients have no immunosuppression, I mean, not obvious immunosuppression, and they have these tumors that are sometimes very big, sometimes very aggressive, sometimes metastatic, regionally metastatic, or distant metastasis. And in this case, we have these clinical trials that have been published recently. It was not randomized, and it was single arm. It was very impressive response rate of this squamous cell carcinoma, and close to 60%. And I could see that in some of my patients, very good efficacy of this anti-PD-1. I've seen some amazing pictures of before and after where you have these huge tumors that just sort of go away. What do we know about the biology? Again, PDL1 levels, tumor mutation burden, whatever. It sounds like they're like fitting into the category of, you know, like MSI or Hodgkin or something, you know, more responsive. Is that the case? Yeah, exactly. But they are usually not MSI, but they have a lot of mutation because of the sun also. Probably. So it's probably for this reason that they respond so well. And it's true that it's amazing. And it's very good because this anti-PD-1, you know, what did we do before with these patients? We gave them chemotherapy, 5-FU, platin-based. Sometimes we gave uh, anti-EGF receptor. But first of all, it did not work that well. But plus, you know, giving chemotherapy to all patients, not so easy. And we are much more comfortable with anti-PD-1, so it has really two advantages. More efficacy, less toxicity, it's a great, great advance. So you mentioned those patients who had transplant. I was going to ask you before, when we were talking about autoimmune diseases and checkpoint inhibitors, what your experience is and what we know from the literature about patients who've had various kinds of transplants, solid organ transplants, bone marrow, aloe, and the various types of you know immune suppression that they might be receiving. What about checkpoint inhibitors within that type of situation? It's always a very difficult decision to take. If you have a renal transplant, you know that if the graft is rejected, you are going to go back to dialysis, but you are not going to die. If you have a heart transplant, if you reject your heart, you are going to die. So it's difficult, it's a very different situation. I personally would not do this kind of treatment in a person with a heart and lung transplant. I would be too afraid. And I heard of some patients receiving these drugs in this situation, and I heard of some death, but it's very isolated cases. In my hospital, we treated some patients with renal transplant, and it's few patients, so I cannot give you a percentage, but I can tell you that some of them lost their transplant, and some did not. But I'm not sure exactly of the percentage. So let's finish out talking about Merkel cell carcinoma. Maybe first you can kind of just provide a little brief review of what Merkel cell is, And what's new in terms of systemic therapy, again, particularly the issue of checkpoint inhibitors? Mm -hmm. So Merkel cell carcinoma is a very rare disease. Very rare. It's an orphan cancer. It looks like nothing, like a nodule, a red nodule. It looks like a spider bite, for example. But then it does not disappear. It grows and it can be very aggressive. In fact, it looks like melanoma in the outcome. It can give rise to lymph node metastasis and then any kind of organs can be touched. Less frequently the brain, in fact, than melanoma, but it can go almost everywhere. It's uh, rapidly fatal. 
and chemotherapy works, but works for two months. So same as does not work. And it touches people quite old. The median age is 10 years more than melanoma and most of the cancers. So we have old patients, so fragile patients, sometimes also with immunosuppression, but not always. And in 80% of the cases, 8-0, you have the presence of a virus. It was found not such a long time ago, this virus, which is from the family of the poliomavirus. A lot of us have this virus, but it does not do any harm, except in some patients. It's a defective virus. It's integrated in the genome, and it gives rise to this Merkel cell carcinoma. So what did we do before anti-PD-1 was tested? We gave, in case of metastatic disease, we gave a chemotherapy with platin and etoposide. So about 30% of response, but the first CT scan or the second, they were already relapsing, so most of them. And now we have anti-PD-L1 and anti-PD-1, which have been tried. Avelumab is an anti-PDL1, and that gave a very good response rate. It has been tested in second line first, about 30% of response, but then in first line it seems to be much higher, and it's just been authorized in France, and it has been authorized in most of the countries. And we also have some very good results with anti-PD1, the one that we know, Pambro and Nivo. And also, very interestingly, it was evaluated in the neoadjuvant setting. Neoadjuvant, it means that we give the drug before doing the surgery in a limited disease, like the tumor is resectable, but before doing the resection, we give the drug. And it was very, very promising, these first results. Any uh, patients you've taken care of with Merkel cell who've had good responses to checkpoint inhibitors? Oh, yes. I remember I showed the patient to my colleagues recently. So this patient was a little atypical because he survived several lines of chemotherapy, which is rare. So he had uh, two or three lines of chemotherapy, but he was relapsing. So we did surgery several times. We resected the metastasis. Maybe if it doesn't seem very logical, but if you don't have any other solution, sometimes you do that doing a surgery for stage 4 disease if you have only one or two metastases. And then we could enroll the patient in the Avelumab trial and receive the drug. Complete response. We stopped the treatment after, I think, 15 months, and now it's more than two years ago and it's free of a relapse. This is wonderful. This was not seen before. So we have in my center, which is a big center in France, we have about 15 patients with Merkel cell carcinoma. So it doesn't seem a lot, but in fact, it's a lot compared to the total number because it's less than 100 in total in France. But half of them are metastatic. And we have some data with anti-PDL1, and we have, with our small group of patients, we have close to 40% of response, and we have two patients who could stop the drug. So we look at that as a miracle. Yeah, you have a patient who got Evalumab, which I guess is approved, at least in the United States, for Merkel cell. And this patient had a complete response, has now been off therapy a couple of years, huh? Exactly. Where was the metastatic disease that patient had? 
Oh, he had a lot of internal lymph nodes and liver. I mean, he had a real stage four disease.